Welcome, I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view the full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. I'm Bob Boisier. I'm the president of the Fetzer Institute, and I cultivate my soul by time in nature. Today, we are joined by Bob Boisier, president of the Fetzer Institute. Bob has served as president of the Fetzer Institute since 2013, where he has helped the organization adopt its current mission, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. This mission reflects the Institute's view that humanity will never summon the will, courage, and hope to meet the challenges we face until a critical mass of us truly open our hearts in love to each other and the natural world. Bob's full bio is available on our podcast website. So Bob, welcome to the Cultivate the Soul podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Melissa, thanks for having me. I want to get us started by asking you to share a memory or a story from your childhood that can help us understand your earliest exposure to inner awareness and how it shaped you. Great question. As I reflected on that, I felt like I could see just a straight through line from my formative spiritual experiences, actually as a relatively young child, to what I'm passionate about today and to the work we're doing. I'll explain that around the theme of story. I think we all live within stories about how the world works, who we are, what a good life looks like, and and how we get there. And so it was blessed to be born into a, a family of faith, a community of faith that gave me a story just very early. We were faithful at church uh, two or three times a week, uh, so Sunday school was a part of my life growing up. And by the time I can, my memory starts, I can remember being told that God is love. And so that was the beginning of the story. First, the affirmation that there is a transcendent dimension to this reality, and it's on our side in a profound way, or he or she is on our side. I was given the image of being the child of a loving God. And then the advice, the wisdom that as a child of God, I'm here to bring as much of God's love into the world as I possibly can. And with that came a solemn injunction that I had been given gifts by God, body, mind, and spirit, and that I had a sacred obligation to cultivate those gifts to make me a more effective vehicle for sharing God's love. One soundbite that plays in my mind to this day, because I heard it from my mother probably three or four times a week, is the verse from uh, the New Testament, to whom much is given, much is expected. And when you think about that, it's simple enough for even a young child to understand it. And of course, it deepens as one lives into it and gets older. But if you embrace it, it sets the trajectory for your 
life. And I think about it as it played out over time in my life. First off, very early, this sense of, of cultivating character and virtue. It's a strong emphasis, not just on action, but on what was in your heart and your mind. And the injunction to think about positive things, to cultivate a loving approach. There's a wonderful passage, I think it's in Galatians, that talks about the fruits of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, if I've got those right. And again, you know, I was strongly encouraged to memorize passages like that so that they became part of my inner tape and they play to this day. And then when it came time to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, just the starting point was you're not looking for a job. You have a calling that you need to discover and live into. And that calling is going to have everything to do with this injunction from childhood to be a vehicle of God's love. When I got married, the passage that played in my head was a beautiful line from St. Paul about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It sanctifies marriage. I jokingly say marriage has been my spiritual practice because it's where you're confronted with the toughest facts about yourself and you can't fake it. So it makes me realize, and this is a powerful part of the work we're doing at Fetzer, the stories we live within make all the difference. And it wasn't all sweetness and light because I was also born into a very conservative Protestant Christianity in the deep South in the United States in the 1950s, which is to say the old South, the pre-civil rights South. And two things that I got, first off, it was a very narrow gate. Only a few people who believed exactly the right thing and said the right things got through to the kingdom of God. And I think even as a young child, I sensed wow, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance here because I'm told that we're all children of this loving God, but only a few of us make it. And so that set me on a trajectory toward an ever more open theological frame. But then the second thing was the church I lived in or I grew up in was in many ways the spiritual pillar of a highly unjust segregated social order. And I heard not a word about that never a sermon, and I was there for a lot of them, about the social implications of faith. Instead, I think a distorted theology that couldn't focus on this life, so it focused totally on where you came out in the next life. And, you know, I see that as a huge problem in our world today. Religion shows up so often as a force for division and separation, and I think that's a, a theological and a practical challenge to us. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story, your story, and very interesting to hear both the positive elements of what shaped you around God's love, as well as the struggles. And we'll get into it a little bit later into what Fetzer does, which since we're longstanding partners, I know that this connects very deeply to also the work that you do in the world. But before we get there, I'd like to continue to explore a little bit more about you and to ask you... What are you most passionate about and what change do you hope to see connected to that passion? Okay, another question I love, which connects very directly to what I've already said about my formative experiences. I feel like in the West, we're living 
within a post-Enlightenment story that's giving us a fundamentally distorted and destructive understanding of the nature of reality and our place in it. To just finish that thought, I think we're at an inflection point, really, at the end of the Enlightenment experiment, if you want to think about it that way, where I would say we are headed toward the collapse of our social order under the combined weight of the Enlightenment's successes and its failures. The way I think about that is the Enlightenment's successes, science, technology, economic productivity, are making us incredibly more powerful as a human species at an accelerating rate. But the Enlightenment's rejection of the spiritual way of engaging reality has steadily diminished our capacity to use that ever greater power for the greater good. In, instead, you know, think about it, we see things like the advent of the internet and this wonderful dream of connection, global connection, a boon to democracy because everybody could participate, universal access to information. It hadn't worked out that way. Just take social media, for example. It's become for many people, a central part of their life experience and a toxic part for many, often. Interesting, uh, we've been in conversation for a number of years with a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt, who's now at NYU. And Jonathan has done a lot of interesting work, but the aspect that comes to mind in the context of this is demonstrating almost a precise correlation between the advent of Facebook and other social media platforms and just precipitous drop in the mental health of adolescents, you know, particularly adolescent girls. And there's a whole story he tells that's, I think, pretty common sense story about what's happened. We also see it in the breakdown of our civic life because instead of giving us all access to shared facts, we have come to live in our echo chambers where we create our own facts. And it's just one example of where if the world that brings those technologies to us woke up every morning saying, how can we build the most life-affirming search engines, the most life-affirming social media platforms, the most life-affirming uses of artificial intelligence, we would live in a profoundly different world. Instead, remembering back, we've sponsored for, well, we were one of the founding sponsors of an interesting annual conference out in San Francisco every year called Wisdom 2.0 that really invites the, the leadership of the tech community to come and take three days and reflect on the deeper implications of their work. Uh, and I remember being out there a, a few years ago listening to a panel, and one of the people on the panel had been one of the designers of the Snapchat platform, particularly popular at the time with adolescent girls. And he wasn't doing it any longer because he couldn't. He told how in the design of that platform, the motive was the longer we keep these young women on the platform, the more ad money we make. So how can we make this platform as addictive as possible? And they were very good at it. And so we've created a system where I think as a pretty direct result of the Enlightenment worldview, the default is short-term self-interest. And 
we see that playing out across pretty much all of the major social systems in a way that is very destructive of a flourishing life and I think has us on this course to a catastrophic collapse. So why am I saying this? Because back to the story makes all the difference. And back to the thought of what if the people animating that system or our education system or our healthcare system or our food system woke up with the default of long-term all-centered decision-making rather than short-term self-interested decision-making, it would radically transform everything. And at the heart of our work at Fetzer is how do we help accelerate the emergence of a new post-enlightenment worldview that we see emerging all over the world already that we think gives a deeper, truer account of the nature of reality and who we are. And it didn't have to be this way, but it turns out it's a much more life-affirming, hopeful story of our being sacred beings living in a sacred reality. And our vision, what I'm passionate about, is helping accelerate the emergence of a global movement that's animated by that shared sacred story. As I've said, I think that's the biggest lever that we can grab hold of. It's the Archimedean lever that gives us leverage on all the challenges we're facing and puts us on a path toward genuine flourishing of the human family, but also the entire community of life. And, uh, you know, I wake up every morning just pinching myself that I get to work on this with my amazing colleagues at Fetzer and with the wonderful financial resources that John Fetzer bequeathed to us. This is all fascinating to hear kind of your viewpoint on where we are in the world today. And you mentioned a flourishing life and Synergos and Fetzer and one of our other members of the Global Philanthropist Circle Last year, we held an online and in-person convening on human flourishing, and this is something that we share in terms of how do we create a world that creates the environment for that. So a question that I have for you is what you do to nourish yourself in order to flourish as you work on these issues. Wonderful question. One way I think about it is that, going back to my theme of sacred beings in a sacred reality, that a flourishing life is, the essence of it is living in sacred, loving relationship in four directions, starting with sacred relationship with the divine, the transcendent, what we're calling these days at Fetzer, the sacred mystery. And I'll come back to that. And believing as I do that that sacred mystery calls me to love, empowers me to love, my starting point is just to try to live in open communion with the sacred mystery, with the divine, in my spiritual native tongue, with God. I think the second sacred relationship is with myself. And it's first off just giving me permission to say, before I start engaging with the rest of reality, I get to take care of myself. And think about that holistically in terms of giving myself permission to take the time to nurture myself, body, mind, and spirit. We are embodied spirits and our bodies are one of our sacred gifts. So, but then so are our mind and our spirits. So lots of different ways. 
I mentioned nature earlier, but just quiet times of reflection, reading, thinking, praying. For me, the third direction is sacred relationship with other people, both individually and societally. And back to love as the touchstone, my simple working definition of love is just the wholehearted desire to be in deep communion, deep relationship with the other, and to make a wholehearted commitment to the flourishing of the other. And for me, that's simple, but incredibly powerful. So it begins by saying, my flourishing, I'm a relational being, and I'm going to only flourish to the extent I'm both held in and contribute to a rich web of loving relationships with other people. And then I think one of the great things we're invited to in our time by our growing ecological awareness is sacred relationship with the natural world and the the entire community of life. So I just, I try to think about my own flourishing in terms of that, uh, that fourfold frame. And, and, And it's, I find it a useful touchstone. That's a beautiful frame. No, thanks so much for sharing that. And, um, I resonate with it deeply. So you've touched a little bit on some of the work of Fetzer Institute. You mentioned Wisdom 2.0 and what you're doing to build global movements and the importance of um, shared sacred stories. But can you tell us more about the work of Fetzer and um, you know, what you're hoping to achieve and how you do it? My favorite subject. We've had a, a pretty clear theory of change for a number of years and some big themes are new story, global movement mobilization of resources, but we're just in the process of moving into the next phase of our strategy in service to that theory of change. And it's got four streams of work. The first one that is foundational to everything else is to try to become a community, an inclusive, spiritually grounded community that embodies our vision for the world. And so a community that is animated by love, by, uh, by a shared sacred story. And we work on that in very concrete ways. As you know, really, uh, for almost 10 years now, we've taken half a day a week, it's Tuesday mornings now, and we bring together our entire staff of about 70 people. Uh, that's everybody from our hospitality staff and buildings and grounds staff, culinary staff, to our senior leadership team. And the uh, goal we set for ourselves when we started is to live into our beautiful guiding purpose statement, which is awakening into and serving spirit for the transformation of self and society. And how do we do that in a workplace where you're not supposed to talk about spirit, religion, a diverse workplace? Because, you know, anytime you get 70 people together anywhere in the world today, but certainly in a diverse country like the U.S., You have diversity on multiple dimensions, certainly spiritual and religious diversity, but also ethnic and gender diversity and ideological diversity. And we're trying to figure out how to be in deeply grounded, transformative spiritual relationship across all those dimensions of difference. It's very hard. We've got a long way to go, but looking back over the last 10 years, I feel good about how we've stepped up to the challenge and the progress we've made. And I like to think that we're working in our little microcosm, the challenge that faces the global community. How can we all 
be in transformative, spiritually grounded relationship across difference. So that's track one, foundational to everything. Track two is this new story track, which I'm, as you can tell, very excited about. And a couple of big ideas set the trajectory for that track. The first is from on the spiritual side, we are now acutely aware of the fact that we're a single human family trying to build a single human civilization. And we're coming to that within very different cultural and spiritual streams. If you think about pretty much each of the major global cultures has had its own sacred story that's been what has provided deep meaning, hope. But how do we hold on to those stories and at the same time find at a deep level a shared story? So we have a wonderful project where we have you know, senior leaders and practitioners from across nine of the great faith traditions working in two steps. First phase is tell us your story, but tell us through the theme of solidarity and love for shared flourishing. We're getting those stories now and the points of commonality and connection are incredibly striking. The second phase will be now that we've listened to each other's sacred story, what's our shared sacred story? So that's the spiritual stream. But all the way back to John Fetzer, we've had a huge passion for bringing the spiritual way of knowing and the scientific way of knowing into right relationship. And what's exciting on the science track is after living for the last couple of centuries within the scientism story, a mutation, I think, of enlightenment science that has taken the reductionist methodology and turned it into a metaphysics that's told us that there's nothing but material reality. It's devoid of meaning. We're seeing across a number of scientific disciplines, just world leading scholars recognizing the fundamental inadequacy of that materialist frame and moving toward a post-materialist frame that has room for consciousness as well as matter as a fundamental part of reality. Well, as soon as you open that possibility, you've opened the space for everything up all the way up to a robust theism. You've opened the space for a sacred reality that's infused with meaning and purpose and value. So we're supporting some amazing scientific work on that track. And ultimately, those two tracks come together in this new worldview. That's stream two. Stream three, quickly, is you know trying to uh, uh, find and empower groups of subversives across a broad range of human activity that are trying to bring this new worldview to bear, imagine what their sector would look like if it was animated by this. And then the fourth stream is going out and finding the other donors, realize that uh, more of the same in philanthropy is not going to do it, that we can't solve the problem within that old worldview. And joining us in mobilizing the resources to finance this, uh, this global movement. So there's more I could say, but that's the highlight. Wow, that is a lot. And I love how it's all interconnected. And I know in working with you, how you bring what you're doing within your own community at Fetzer to the outside world through these projects. And it's groundbreaking what Fetzer Institute is doing in this space. I wanted to ask you, you've been working now for this for quite a few years. What do you see as some of the greatest tensions or challenges facing global philanthropy? You spoke about your fourth strategy around working with donors. 
where's the potential? Where's the tension in trying to make these changes? I think I got three things to say there quickly. The first is that I think we're dealing with a situation that brings to mind the, the quote that is often attributed to Einstein, problems can't be solved within the level of consciousness that created them. And I think we're trying to solve our social problems by doubling down on a technocratic policy-based approach that's actually grounded in this very inadequate enlightenment worldview. So I just would invite philanthropists to ask themselves, is that what we're doing? And do we really think that you know, another decade or two of more of the same is going to actually make a difference. And if they decide that maybe not, I invite them to join us in this effort to create a movement animated by this new worldview. The second challenge is I don't think we can be in a very broken, fractious, hateful world often. And then the third, uh, and this is stepping into our vision one of the things we have to candidly recognize is that often is not organized religion shows up as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. I have a lot I'd love to say about that, but very briefly, I think within every religious tradition, it starts with this just electric transformative encounter with the sacred mystery, but there's a pull toward putting concepts that rigidify into dogma and dogmatism that makes the tradition ultimately sterile and also subject to capture by other agendas. So I think there's just this eternal need within the traditions for self-renewal back to that transformative life-giving experience of the sacred mystery. So three big challenges. Yes. And so as you and we all together work to address those challenges, how do you imagine the future and what role do you see philanthropy as playing? Well, I think we're walking on a nice edge in this. I think what I'm excited about, what animates me is the vision I just sketched. If enough of us step up and energetically, wholeheartedly embrace that, I think we actually could create a world of shared flourishing. If, on the other hand, we continue to live within this very inadequate old story, I think the, the future is bleak. But I finish that thought by saying that which of those futures comes to pass is way above my pay grade. That ultimately what I'm called to do is to be faithful to this vision. And the thing I'll report is the best thing about this work is the people you get to do it with. If you want to hang out with people that are joyful, life-affirming, hopeful, embrace this work. Well, wonderful. So how do the listeners who've heard this and want to connect to you, how do they learn more? How do they connect to Fetzer? Do you have a website? Are there, what is the best way for them to connect to you? We have a website, we have a e-newsletter. So just right there, if you want to know more, join, we have social media presence. So you can stay up with us that way. I'm hoping that over the next three to five years, as we get further into animating these subversive cells, there will be concrete opportunities to find your subversive cell and plug into it. That's where it is now. That's great. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of this with us. And we look forward to our continued partnership. As do we. So uh, thank you for everything Synergos is doing. Thank you. What I loved about this conversation with Bob is hearing his personal story, what was meaningful to him growing up, and how through his work with Fetzer, they are using story 
to build a global movement grounded in love and human flourishing.